Welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rizika. And I'm Andres Lorente. And on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two films for you. One old, one new. And we try to make connections between the two. Yeah, lots of rhymes. We're also poets <laughs> here. You, you actually prepared that. That's awesome. I did. Uh, as usual, we'll quickly do this, the show, socials at the top. Uh, yeah. So you can find us on Twitter at Two Real Cine Club at twitter.com. We're on Instagram, Two Real Cinema Club at instagram.com. We have a blog at Two Real Cinema Club.com where we write various guff. Uh, you can email us at the two real at at two real cinema club at gmail. No, the and then uh, tell tell your friends, uh, spread the word. We'd appreciate it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spot, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts, and we put them up on YouTube as well. Um, so there's there's no excuse. There's no excuse. I had a patient this week um, who told me, uh, "Oh, you've got a great voice for radio." He told me, which was, and I, and I wasn't sure whether he was trying to be flattering or whether he was telling me I was ugly. And uh, it was only some <laughs> hours later on that I realised the reason he said that was because uh, I was listening to music through headphones when he was addressing me and uh, only listened to his comments in between the records. So that must have been one. Oh. So this this episode, we have got um, two, we, this, this episode, we have literally watched the same film twice in a very real way, do you think? Uh, between Moon Age Daydream. And, and the man who fell to earth because because the first film contains footage from the second good point good point yeah and we will so, talk so, about that yeah, yeah we have literally watched one and a half david bowie films back to back um you know one is has copied a lot of scenes from the other so yeah two david bowie films um back to back first of all it's, it's nice that your 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 patient didn't say that you have a face for radio isn't that the insult <laughs> one <laughs> that you have a face for radio <laughs> Yeah, um, that would have been true as well. Yeah, and um, I just need to apologize to all those people out there sending us email because it, by my fault, we got locked out of the email for a couple of weeks. And <laughs> Jimmy should really do all the social stuff because I am an immigrant, a digital immigrant <laughs> is what I am when it comes to all that stuff. So uh, apologies to uh, uh, that one email that we didn't get to, but we found it. We'll respond. Damn you, Google, and your cybersecurity. I know. God, too much security. Too many passwords in my brain. Uh, Moon Age Daydream um, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah, so the I guess the connective tissue here is the great David Bowie. The late David Bowie. The late, the late great David Bowie, exactly. Um, and yeah, I did feel like I saw the same film twice in many ways because I saw Moon Age Daydream first. And I said, oh boy, that's footage from uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. And then... A, a couple minutes later, I said, oh, that's footage from The Man Who Fell to Earth. And then kind of <laughs> the nature of the film, which we'll talk about, um, does mean that you do see, you really do feel like you saw both films. But I had seen uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, I think I saw it years ago. But when I actually watched the whole film, I realized I don't think I'd ever seen the whole film. Mm. So they were both new to me. Um, the new one is uh, 2022. It's directed by uh, Brett Morgan who directed uh, The Kid Stays in the Picture. It's the documentary about the great uh, producer, Robert Evans. Um, yeah, have you, did you see that? Have you seen that? The I haven't. So I was going to ask you, have you seen that? I, I have seen it. I read the book as well, actually. Okay. I read the book first and then saw the movie. And, and um, uh, the movie just kind of siphons off a bunch of interviews from the book, I think. Okay. And it's going to be, yeah, and it's uh, entertaining, but um, it feels like it's only two steps away from a, an audio book. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Well, this is not two steps away from an audio book. 
So it, it is kind of two steps away from a concert movie, yeah, I suppose. It's definitely two steps away, thing, I think, from a full concert movie. Um, it even says it's not a film. It's a cinematic experience. I saw that uh, in one trailer. Um, it's been called a cinematic odyssey, and it's also been called a film by Brett Morgan. So, um, <laughs> And I, yeah, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that it's going to be, I think you and I are probably going to have a more open conversation on this than normally we do when we sort of run down the, the plot points of the film because it's, um, well, it's not a film. It's a cinematic experience. There's no plot points. Yeah, there's no plot points. I did hear an interview with uh, Brett Morgan on National Public Radio here. Um, and I think it's worth noting that he said um, in that interview, I won't make another music documentary. Okay. Um, and he was, it, the I think the origins of it, he was sort of pent up during COVID and he was making the film totally in isolation. He was alone. Um, he must have some sort of home studio or editing bay or something like that. Um, and I, the irony came to me that, you know, here's this man completely uh, holed up in one room working on a documentary about this other guy who's just moving all over the world quite <laughs> freely. He's doing all sorts of things um, uh, himself and exploring his own um, character and his own personality. Uh, and this guy just it must have just driven him crazy to be watching David Bowie again and again being fantastic and being in Indonesia and being in, in the Western United States and England and just, Germany. Just being out of doors, frankly, yes. Yeah, so he was constantly out about and it really captures his life, uh, David Bowie's life. Pretty well, but Brett Morgan apparently did have a hard time just uh, doing it on his own. So it, it it does, and it I'm going to compare it to another film a little bit later on. But um, it does strike me that it seems like this is just this one guy cooped up making a film. You kind of get that feeling um, in the movie theater. Um, so I'm glad I heard that interview beforehand. Um, and I think in the process, like Brett Morgan seems to learn a lot from Bowie as we do as the viewers of the film, like uh, on how to live. It's almost like uh, David Bowie's, uh, uh, I don't know, book or a guide to how to live a great, fantastic, super artistic, uh, super famous life. Is it, although, is, is it a how-to or is it just a I did? Yeah, it's probably an I did, yeah. <laughs> an example that you'd want to follow. I mean, who would not want to be David Bowie after seeing this film? It's, uh, it's pretty intense. Um Starts out very spacey, doesn't it, and planetary, and it sort of sets up Bowie as being some sort of alien. Um, I think you start to see images of maybe the moon and and the universe, and then all of a sudden you see him sort of it's in like this... a picture of a lunar eclipse, isn't it? And yeah, he, he keeps coming back to this image. He keeps yeah. replaying it. It comes back again and again. He repeats a lot of images, and that's why this film is over two hours. I forget the exact one. I think mm. it was over two two hours and seven minutes or something like that. And it seems like there's so much repeating material that. Uh, it sort of extends the film a little bit longer than it's welcome, I think. Um, but uh, it sort of starts with the whole, um, I mean, it looked like the Ziggy Stardust phase or certainly um, his right, um, yeah. sort of androgynous uh, phase and, and the glam rock. So it's, it sort of paints him as being this really weird dude, at least early in his career. Um, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if it's bisexuality that's juxtaposed with masculinity or um, some sort of... Uh, or non-binary um, Bowie in the early going. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, again and again, the, the themes that come out, and I think I'm probably going to talk a lot more about themes than filmmaking and, and such, but um, like individualism is really what's important to Bowie. 
And because he has all these different uh, personalities that he had, it's the Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke or, um, you know, various Bowies, um, that almost even multiple individualism, if that makes any sense, that he, he wants to explore his own personas, however that many there may be. He wants to be different artists, and we definitely see that throughout the film. It's, um, it's kind of largely chronological, isn't it? Because it starts out with these kind of like early 70s yeah. performances, and then it goes through his... Um you know, his uh, kind of Berlin phase and then it kind of it kind of goes to the 80s and yep. then he kind of um and then you get like a little bit of his kind of like sort of 90s and 2000s persona so it, it sort of goes through it does try and tell a bit of a a chronological story but um it feels like it's very front loaded and the Bowie that the film is most interested in is that Bowie from like 1970 to 1982, something like that. Yeah, at latest. Yeah, maybe even maybe even like 76 or 77. It's a... Right, okay, yeah. And I, I did find those early live performances, which apparently are the bits of footage which haven't been seen before. Yeah. I did find those really electrifying. There are some fantastic you know, early stage performances. Yeah. Um, there's a you know a lot of it that's been kind of shot from the mosh pit, yeah. and there's there's an uncomfortable amount of the camera staring straight up at David Bowie's crotch while he sings. Yeah, uh, it occasionally yeah, yeah. made me think, oh, I could be a bit discreet and pan away for a moment. Come on, <laughs> um, but I did I did really enjoy those performances. Yeah, though for me, I thought the film peaked a bit early with those performances, and I didn't find you know. The, the the remaining two thirds of the film quite as interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, those aren't the Bowie songs that I like as much. That's not musically. I'm not interested in that phase nearly as much. But the performance, because this is the early '70s. I, I don't think the world had ever seen stuff like that um, before. Yeah. So I think it, as performances, they're magnificent. The music, I, I don't think, is his strongest music, and certainly not his strongest lyrics. So for me, I'm I wanted to see more. Even like an origin story a little bit more. I mean, we do get into the the his his childhood. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but you know that those there were some teen years and some like the early musical stuff. I thought was kind of um, uh, sort of just glossed over. And then the end of his career, he had a couple more albums in into the two thousands. And and I think he released an album two days before he died or something like that. I mean, yeah. so he um, there's other music out there that. He, uh, Brett Morgan didn't pay any attention to all whatsoever. So I think you're right. It's front-loaded. He he really wanted to explore the spacey part, at, and I think to the detriment of covering a lot more of Bowie's career. Although, you know, maybe for us, this is you know, some of the most interesting footage. I do end up feeling like a lot of the film ends up looking a little bit like a bit of a whitewash. Mm. Um, I did uh, come away from the end of the film thinking, well, wait, wait a second, Where's, where is Angie who is um, David Bowie's first wife. First wife, yeah. Who, who he was married to from 1970 to 1980, who doesn't get a mention. Um, there's a um, uh, a section towards the end of the film where he meets you know, Iman and mm-hmm. you get a whole bunch of quotes about him saying how fantastic it is to be in love and I never thought I'd be married and here I am sort of you know, happy yeah. meeting somebody at this age. Um, where his first wife you know, doesn't appear at all and his son, Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, doesn't appear. There's, I don't think he was mentioned. Yeah. No, exactly. Rendered utterly invisible. Yeah. It does feel like a little bit of a, a sort of a whitewash there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I must say, I came away from the film feeling that I'd seen you know a lot of Bowie personas. Yeah. But hadn't had that much of a 
convincing glimpse of a real David Bowie. Precisely, yeah. Uh, which I'm guessing, you know, maybe that's that's what he would have wanted. The film was made with the cooperation of the David Bowie estate. Yeah. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that it's largely hagiography. But um, I was expecting there to be, you know, a little bit more um, of an unsettling revelation or, you know, a bit of a surprise. Um, in a way, I, I tell you what this film really reminded me of. Um, I was trying to describe it to a friend and I was saying it's like, imagine that you had an uncle who really loved David Bowie. And this is back in the days when people would have like VHS television recorders, like a uh, VHS recorder. And um, so your uncle, we'll call him Kevin, would always um, you know, record David Bowie when he was on the telly. You think, oh, there's an interview with David Bowie tonight. I'll record that. And sometimes he would miss the beginning because he wasn't very good at the time. Yeah. He'd record a bit of it. And then and then. Um, you know, a bit of the man who fell to earth is on. Oh, I'll record that, and so Kevin records a bit of that, and then there's some, you know, a concert footage, and then there's a appearance on top of the pops, and then there's a Pepsi advert with Tina Turner, and all of these little bits of snippets. Yeah. Um, Kevin just records, and then after all these years, he's filled up the VHS tape. And he invites his friends around who also like David Bowie. They open a couple of beers, and they just watch the tape from start to finish. And I felt a little bit like that was what I was watching. It felt like somebody's VHS of random Bowie clips mm -hmm. from when he's been on telly over the last 20 years. And uh, there was, it felt to me like there was very little authorship that I could see on screen. It was um, Bowie footage presented as Bowie footage without any clever juxtaposition or any new revelations or any surprises. Um, it was a film about David Bowie for Bowie fans by a Bowie fan that shows how great David Bowie was. And that's where the full stop comes. So I was a bit disappointed there wasn't a, you know, a, a leaf that was turned over, a rock that was looked under, a new surprise. Yeah. I would say, unlike your Uncle Kevin's uh, VHS tape, it was highly curated, though. It's like, obviously, he put a lot of time into making it into an artwork. And I think the, the larger theme for me is that uh, life is a performance, especially for someone like Bowie, who's got all these talents, and he's constantly reinventing himself. There's this existential theme of you're just going to go out and be that personality. If you've got the talent, if you've got the ideas, you just become something and you just do stuff, you know, and, and you're just making, you're living your life kind of as an uh, artwork, a progressive piece of artwork that you just keep changing. Um, but I think Brett Morgan is really, you're right. He's totally focused on a certain era and a certain kind of Bowie. And we see that again and again. And it is largely chronological, but I, I guess... Like like space, there are these massive holes in it, right? I mean, there there are periods he do, you don't mention his his first wife, his child, um, entire decades where there wasn't stuff interesting for for Brett Morgan to put in there. So you, there there are some black holes in the film for sure, um, but Bo, Bowie fills them all with his character and 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 some of the various pursuits um, that he um, you know in uh, sort of pursued i guess you know the, the sort of pursuits that he wanted to to take on um so we see um we see him as a dancer we see him as a mime we see him um acting in new york in elephant man yeah that was a revelation actually that i mean he seemed great in that yeah we see him as a film actor um uh, there's much to envy you know he dances mimes paints sculpts sings he travels a lot he he's an actor he rocks he writes he marries a beautiful model um so you end up with this massive case of bowie envy to a certain extent because this guy <laughs> accomplished a lot he lived a great life um and this sort of celebrates that but I, yeah I, I do agree with you entirely that the depth of uh, david bowie isn't totally explored i guess it's and and that's maybe that's what again maybe that's the point is that there's the, the, he had these 
multiple surfaces, these multiple personalities, and it makes it a little bit harder to get into some of the, I guess, more mundane aspects of his life. When you see kind of artists who have many different skills mm -hmm. or who kind of turn themselves to many different outlets, um, I always I call this the Michelangelo effect. I think so. You know, David Bowie. We see, you know, he was when he was. You know, good at acting and the paintings are surprisingly good. Yeah. And the video art was interesting. And, um, you know, the, the kind of the, all these different um, artworks that he turned his hand to, many, many of them interesting. Yeah. But I think none of them quite as good as, you know, that kind of you know, 1970 to 1980 Bowie live on stage. Yeah. I feel a little bit like that with Michelangelo. That, you know, Michelangelo did all these paintings and he was a great painter, but he was... You know, God's own sculptor. He was the finest sculptor who ever lived, in my humble opinion. Um, and I sort of feel like every day that Michelangelo spent painting is a crime against humanity. It's a waste because he mm. could have spent that day sculpting, which is yeah. the, the one thing that he was truly better than any other human ever at. Yeah. And I feel a little bit like I'm sure David Bowie, you know, had a blast acting in The Elephant Man and, and you know, and appearing in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and then going and doing some painting and being a mime. Yeah, it's all great. Well done. But you know what, buddy? Why don't you just stick to the thing that you're really, really good at and explore that to the very greatest depth you can? Mm. Um, because, you know, you know, there are some things that you were you know, not just good at, but great at. You know, why not pour everything you've got into that? And, and, and see how high you can take that greatness. That's my attitude. But then that's obviously that's the attitude of someone who's no good at anything. So, so yeah. <laughs> it's easy, easy for me to point the bloody finger, isn't it? Well, I think there's a, I guess there's a debate in there about uh, a generalist being a generalist versus being a specialist. And yeah, he, I think he maybe he could have made more great music if he'd been a specialist in, in music. He does seem really divided in his attentions and... Um, he just he's, he seems like he's on this just uh, tear of I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to be successful as this really complete artist who does many different things. But maybe he does spread himself a little too thin. And I think that the film sort of, I think the film illustrates that intentionally or not. Um, you know, we go back to him dancing. He's doing some modern dance stuff. It's probably one of his weaker arts, honestly. But we see it a lot, or we see him as miming. Um, he looks like he's doing, like, he's definitely doing some film acting because we see bits of The Man Who Fell to Earth, but we also see these other videos that he may have uh, put together himself. Um, and, and I agree with you, the talent gets spread a little thin, but he still, you know, lives on as this legend of, of music. But maybe, maybe if he'd just done more music, he would have been even greater, you know? Oh, I see. Maybe, maybe. Um, you saw this at the cinema, yes? Am I right? I did, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, when I went, I went uh, on a weekday lunchtime and I was expecting to be pretty much the only person in there. And I wasn't. There were there were about like eight or ten other people in the screening with me. Yeah. Um, but I, I was probably the youngest of them, I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, and when I was walking out, um, I was walking out behind a lady who was, I would say, in her 60s. Um, she looked like she'd come with her sons. OK, he was younger than me, but I, I could hear their conversation. And um, she was telling her son how much her father had loved David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, listening to that conversation made me realise how, you know, how much this film is aimed at what we in Britain call the Grey Pound. This is a film for you know, people in their 50s and 60s and older, isn't it? That at the very start mm. of the movie, there's a teenager who's crying outside Brixton Academy because she's waiting for David Bowie to come out of the the um, the stage door. Yeah. And he only hasn't come out and she's so upset she really, really wants to meet him. And I did a little bit of mental arithmetic on the way home and figured out I think that girl crying outside Brixton Academy is at least 65 now. Sure. 
And that girl is who the film is aimed at. Yeah. This is a film for, you know, uh, people in their 60s. Yeah. And I, actually, I'm quite pleased that someone has realised that there will be, you know, enough people in their 60s who want to go and see a film about, by, with, featuring David Bowie um, for this to be a film that can, you know, have a proper theatrical release. It's actually quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. I agree, yeah. But we, I, there were definitely some grey hairs in the theatre when, when we were there. We were a couple of them, but yeah. It was, <laughs> and I, I love going to stuff like that because I, it makes me feel younger, you know? You see all these old people say, yes, I'm younger <laughs> yeah. than they are. Yeah, I'm down with the old um, people. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, there's some interesting things, though, about um, when we do get a little snippet of his, his youth, um, his brother's schizophrenia like clearly frightens him, I think, and it makes him think about mental illness as kind of a lingering threat in his own life, potentially. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, he's he's exploring all these personalities that he wants to explore, and he's also uh, probably hoping that he doesn't have to explore a personality that he doesn't want to, to face. Um, and I think that was interesting, but coupled with this this under undercurrent of a theme of being uncomfortable. He says, you know, he doesn't want to be safe. He wants to change his scenery all the time. And this, this kind of feeds him. He's, he's just feeding on change all the time. And he makes massive changes in his career from, from one persona, persona to another. So I really like that part of the film where he was putting himself in situations and doing things where he wasn't as strong. Maybe he's not a strong dancer or a strong actor, but he went out there and did it to become better at it and to, to sort of tap into creativity as a result of not being comfortable. I liked that theme that came out again and again. Yeah, yep. And there are, yeah, there's a whole bunch of very entertaining highlights yeah. um, in this film. I just made a kind of few um, little notes here, like yeah. those kind of Berlin albums he recorded with Brian Eno. It's fascinating yeah. to watch watch them in the studio, sort of mixing that album. There's a great performance of Heroes, yes, um, which is probably my favourite Bowie song. And there's a great performance in front of an absolutely massive US stadium of Let's Dance, where it really yeah. feels like they're playing it at like one and a half speed. It's a really, really sped up version of yeah, Let's yeah, Dance. Yeah, it is very fast. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> That's not the album version. <laughs> yeah, I, and it, it's, it's either that someone's told oh, the license is running out in five minutes, so yeah. we're going to have to turn the house lights on. So quick, quick, get through the song, quick. Um, I love the hero's performance, and I love, I'm a big Adrian Bilu fan, and he comes on stage um, and records with him in Germany on that. So he's the guitarist on that song, and I just love seeing him play together. And that was another thing is I would have loved to have seen more musicians that he played with over the years. You know, like some of the famous people he recorded with, or. And it's not that kind of documentary where they're exploring. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. really focused so exclusively on on David Bowie that it sort of gives short shrift to a lot of the people who supported him and you know wrote songs with John Lennon and um, just played with so many with Stevie Ray Vaughan. He just recorded with so many people and or the Queen bit, you know, under pressure. I mean, just oh, yeah. some things that really get overlooked. They're just classics of the entire rock and roll canon and. Um, nothing's made of that. So you don't. As a result, you sort of he's out there floating in space in so many different ways. Like he's not in the context of any of the of any one decade for very long so that you get to see how he interacted with other musicians and how um he you know what his place was in in each decade and each era that he passed through you know listening to you talk about him now i think i've realized i think we probably must be in the matrix yeah and david bowie's the guy who won the lottery didn't he to get like like the best ticket yes he's like he's like number one so he just gets to do all of the things (laughs) (laughs) he won oh man (laughs) Um, I'm sorry to say there yeah. was a point uh, during this film uh, where I did pick up my phone and start dialing the cliche squad. Oh, cliche squad. 
can you guess what it was? Um, I, yes, I know exactly what it was. It was um, <laughs> escalators and staircases, right? Oh, interestingly, it wasn't. But you're right. There were a lot of escalators. Oh, he went back to a couple staircases. <gasps> David Bowie was going up and down escalators a lot. There were empty escalators. There was something about again. It's I guess it's this whole space image that he the metaphor of him going into space, coming out of space. But that's not the cliche. What's the cliche? It's, 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 elevators and stairs are a really easy way to film something pretty yeah. cinematic, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You're exactly right. No, I was going to phone the cliche score because. Uh, uh, Every time a, a, a rock star from the 70s or the 80s announces that they are interested in Eastern philosophy and spirituality, that immediately makes me dial the cliche squad, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, right. Is that right? Yeah. You had to, you had to have some interest or some trip east uh, during yeah, that time, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I, but when, when he is asked about his religion, he says, um, I love life. That was it. <laughs> Which I liked. I mean, I think that that's that's that you life is a good thing to worship, and he certainly did, and he sort of led many lives as a result. He he squeezed the most out of his years, didn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, oh, definitely. So the film that this really reminded me of, and I don't know if you've seen this or not, and our our listeners have seen it, but um, there was a film. I think it was two thousand three, maybe called Tarnation. Did you see Tarnation? I don't. Th- think so but it rings a bell carry on yeah it's a it's a young artsy type very much like david bowie um but he'd been recording himself on probably on vhs maybe even um eight millimeter way back when so he had images of his whole life and he was sort of a a drama type too um so doing theater or just dressing up um and he ends up making this sort of I don't know, I want to call it an auto-documentary or something like that. Um, his wife, no, his wife, his mother's schizophrenic. So she's, he's sort of recording her life as well as his own. Uh, the guy's name is Jonathan Coet, and he did the whole thing I, on an iMac, I think. You know, so it's, I have seen that yeah, movie, yeah. yes. So this film reminded me a lot of that somehow. And I, you know, there's the schizophrenic connection, too, of this person who's just, I think, deep down, just absolutely paranoid about you know, coming down with any kind of schizophrenia or mental illness whatsoever. And then as a result, also documenting their own life and just living this completely artistic life where they're allowed to almost safely explore multiple personalities as opposed to someone who's close to them having to struggle with um, a multiple um, personality disorder or some sort of schizophrenia or just some sort of um, lack of being tethered to reality. And the, the film really reminded me, and also in the in the editing style, I felt very reminded of Tarnation. Mm. I remember now that I was I was sent to see Tarnation when I was um, doing film reviews for Film Exposed, okay. the website. Yeah. And um, yeah, they sent me to see this movie and I wrote in my review that um, because the guy who'd made it had been diagnosed with um, narcissistic personality <laughs> disorder, I, I wrote that you know, the act of going to see the movie yeah. was like literally making his personality disorder worse. Yeah. <laughs> and so by attending the film at all, you were contributing to his mental illness. Yeah, there's maybe um, a little bit of that in there yeah, too. Yeah, I didn't Absolutely. like that film. Um, but uh, but that guy's doing pretty well if he's getting compared to David Bowie. Well, on this very modest podcast, <laughs> yes. Um, but it, just, it was more of a reminder. And, you know, not necessarily a positive reminder, maybe not a negative reminder, but definitely the, the two films had some, some, some similarities and some connective tissue, I thought, so... I've got one last question yeah, for you, which is uh, when you went to see it, did they play the music loud in your screening? It was pretty loud. And we sat very close to the front. So most of the speakers at the front in that theater, I believe. Um, a friend of mine had texted me in maybe the trailer, I think, 
Um, and he'd seen it in an IMAX theater very loud. And that may have made a difference. I think maybe the performances would have stood out more. But I think there's still some spaces in there that are a little bit empty for me. So I don't know that I would want to see a lot of the rest of the film on an IMAX screen with, with super high volume. But um, how about for you? Did you get like a concert experience out of it? No, I was I was disappointingly quiet, actually. Mm. I, I was kind of reminded a little bit when I went to see um, Purple Rain when oh. it was released in the cinema back yeah. in sort of 85 or something like that. And um, there the projectionist must have been a really big Prince fan because it was cranked up incredibly oh, loud. My ears were ringing as I came out of the cinema. That was fantastic. And I was expecting something a little bit like this, but yeah. no, a, a polite afternoon screening in Wimbledon meant that they kept the volume down. Oh, so proper, so proper. Yeah, it's not, it's not a concert film, so I guess that doesn't make sense. And it's... It's oddly, it's kind of a visual experimentation film. It's in a, yeah. it's not really that kind of documentary where there's a lot of contractor footage and it's it's super loud. There's definitely some good stuff. The hero's moment is fantastic. Um, Let's Dance is bizarre because it's such a big show and you're right, it's so fast compared to the album version. Well, um, uh, speaking of visual experiences, yeah. uh, let's have a break and yeah. we will move on to uh, our other David Bowie film, uh, which we've just watched a bit of in Moon Age Daydream. So let's have a break and we'll come back and talk about The Man Who Fell. We have all heard more than enough about erectile dysfunction. <laughs> but what about... Speak for yourself. But what about, Jimmy, what about erectile hyperfunk? Beep, beep, <laughs> beep. <laughs> we interrupt this fake advertisement to bring you a different fake advertisement. <laughs> Jimmy, it was a very tough Saturday for me. Right. Okay. Tough meaning hard? Very what? difficult. Yeah. I had this long to-do list right. with various chores around the house. Something long, was it? Yeah. Yep. Long, so had, yeah something long to do. The, well, yeah. well, it's a long list to get through uh, and yeah. not much time to do all the things on it. Uh, and of course, I ended up doing battle with a number of products that didn't pass the grandma test. <laughs> do you know the grandma um, test? I'm not sure I do know the grandma test. For me, it's uh, maybe it's just a family expression or something. If a company makes a product that your grandmother can't assemble, maintain, or repair easily without a lot of fancy tools, muscle, or frustration, then they need to redesign the product. So, so you're, you're talking about every car ever manufactured then? Thank you for starting with the car. I had to change this <laughs> light bulb in a Subaru headlight. Super hard to get at. Plenty of breakable plastic, and you need a surprising amount of strength in very small, nimble fingers to do the job. That doesn't pass the grandma test. Then I literally brought out my sewing needle kit to fish window blind cord through a pinhole of a piece of tiny plastic, all because of a child safety feature that assures that the cord is designed to break. <laughs> and again, tiny working fingers and very good eyesight. There are no grandmas with really good eyesight, right? Well, yeah. Well, but here you go. That's a product that needs child proofing, <laughs> but it makes it granny proof too, right? Okay, lastly, I come home. I'm helping my wife. She's assembling a piece of metal furniture with no instructions. You see the, you've seen this. Th stuff just has pictures and letters now, and you're supposed to put it all together. <laughs> right. 
So this piece of crap was so hastily made that the telescoping metal parts weren't the right size, and they had to be oh. forced into place with a rubber hammer. It was hammer time again around the house. Um, hammer time. So grandma has to have muscles. It's noisy, so you better hope your grandmother's deaf to do that job. And it's frustrating. If she has a pacemaker or high blood pressure, it might be no more grandma, right? <laughs> so none of these products pass the grandma test. They just don't is work. It, is it possible you're overworking your grandmother? Possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let the poor woman have a break. Gives me a break, right? <laughs> do you know what does work? What does work? The internet. <laughs> Speak for yourself. And you know what? You, you know what else works? What, what what else works? Apple computers. Holy shit! I just got a oh. new MacBook Pro, and my grandmother, who has been dead for forty two years, she could have set it up. It was so easy. They know what they're doing, don't they? Those guys have uh, in house grandma testing. I think they've got grandmothers in their laboratories testing their products. <laughs> so. All this to say that there's something else that works. It's called grannytests.com. You can research projects that do pass the grandma test. Granny Test has done the research for you. I've used it in the past, and here's how it works. Send your troublesome products to their laboratories where they have a team of decrepit nonagenarians that will test them to determine <laughs> if they work or not, and then they list them on their website with a rating of how many grannies it takes to assemble, maintain, <laughs> or repair. So, for example, half a granny or one granny, you're good to go. <laughs> Two grannies means purchase at your own risk. And a horizontal granny in the coffin means don't buy the piece <laughs> of crap in the first place unless you're the kind of misanthrope who wants to kill your grandmother. Sadly, in this day and age, nothing I have ever sent to the laboratories has ever been returned to me. So I'm spending a lot on shipping. I'm not getting any refunds, but I've been assured that they sell unusable goods to raise money for charity or for Granny's personal gain. <laughs> and I, I, Jimmy, get the satisfaction and peace of mind knowing anyone who uses the website won't make the same mistakes I did. So, be a good little muffin. Listen and learn from the elderly. Try grannytests.com. That's G-R-A-N-N-Y-T-E-S-S dot com. If Granny can't do it, then no one should have to go through it. Oh, that's good. And we are back. Um, after I've just spent half an hour searching for, for grannytest.com. Apparently it doesn't exist. I don't believe it. I can't believe it. <laughs> Go I've, figure. I've been lied to. <laughs> so, so we're going to talk about um, about our, well, I say other David Bowie movie of the night, but it, yeah, it does feature quite heavily in the first David Bowie movie of the night. So 1.5 movies yeah. at the at the Two Real Cinema Club, the, the 1.5 Real Cinema Club. Uh, this week, this is The Man Who Fell to Earth from 1976. Now, I had never seen this before, apart from a small little clip. Um, I turned on the television uh, when I was a teenager, I think, and it must have been on, on, uh, on the BBC yeah. uh, late at night on a Saturday night. And I saw just a very, very short, brief little bit of this movie. And I will tell you which brief little bit I saw oh, good. when we came to it, when we come to it, because okay. um, it's utterly pivotal and completely uh, informed my view of the film <laughs> just from, from seeing these 30 seconds. So um, written by uh, Paul Meersberg. 
who's a British uh, critic, movie critic. Oh. He also went on to write Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. He wrote Croupier. I don't know if you've seen that, which yeah. is the Clive Owen breakthrough movie from 1998. So yeah. he's done a bunch of different things. Mm. Um, but I think this was the first kind of major picture that he wrote, directed by Nicholas Rogue, a uh, British director. He, so he directed Performance and Walkabout before this and then did uh, Don't Look Now uh, before this. Thanks for mentioning Walkabout because that is one of my absolute all-time favorite films. And then... Every other Nicholas Rogue film I really have a hard time with. So that's, um, and I just always have to remember, he did walk about, he did walk about. What do you, do you not like Don't Look Now? Don't, um, that's a really weird film. That's the Donald Sutherland film, right? Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie. Yeah, Yeah, Julie Christie, that's Wandering around Venice. I did see that in London when I was living there and it just, it it kind of freaked me out and it just wasn't, I I like weird, you know I like weird, but it just wasn't the right weird for me somehow. And, And, you know, we just talked about Insignificance a couple weeks ago and, and now this one, and um, yeah, the, but I mean, Walkabout. It's funny. I think it might be his first feature film, or certainly among his first. It's like nineteen seventy. Second feature, a year after performance. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and performance is that? That's the um, Andy Warhol film, right? And I think it's um, about Andy Warhol. Andy or? Warhol might be in it. It's definitely Mick Jagger. Oh, oh, and, oh, oh. and one of the Fox brothers. Okay, uh, Edward Fox. That's right. I think. I should go back and see that, but Walkabout, I just love. I adore that film. I think it's incredible. Um, and then I don't think this one's incredible, but I'm not I'm not going to tell you what my favorite scene is or the, any of the scenes that I remember, but I'm going to just let you go on. Also, it's based on a novel by Walter Tevis, um, who I hadn't heard of before, but this is the guy he wrote to, and he wrote six novels, yeah. um, and three of them became uh, major motion pictures. Wow. So uh, this, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and The Hustler, and The Color of Money. Oh, um, were all written by Walter Tevis, all turned into you know, significant pictures. And he also wrote um, the book, The Queen's Gambit, turned into a series by Netflix oh last my year Lord, or so. Which is awesome. So incredible hit rate, really, yeah. for this guy. Um, so uh, the man who fell to earth, surprise, surprise, you can tell from the title, mm. science fiction picture. Um, so it opens with a spaceship crash. There's a kind of a bit of a montage of newsreel footage of spaceships breaking up in the atmosphere. Um, there's a big splashdown um, in a lake in New Mexico. And then the next thing we see is David Bowie. Um, he's wearing a long brown coat and he's slipping down a gravel hill. Uh, he uh, He's trying to get to grips with uh, humans and uh, Earth's gravity. Yeah. Eventually he finds his way to a pawn shop mm-hmm. um, where he produces a ring and it turns out he is English. He speaks with an English accent. He's got an English passport, a British passport. Um, he pawns this ring and then uh, one of the nicer gags in the movie, after he leaves the shop, he, we, he pulls out of his pocket um, a chain of like 200 of these identical gold rings. And this <laughs> is how, this is the currency that he's brought from his, from his alien planet. Um, down to down to earth. So we get a bit of a flashback about uh, David Bowie. His character is called Thomas Jerome Newton. Uh, nice, he's chosen a name after an uh, eminent scientist. So he comes mm-hmm. from an alien world uh, which is dying. It's a desert world. It's arid. Uh, and he's like on a last ditch mission to try and save his family and save his, his people. So he's come to the earth. He gathers together a bit of cash by setting these gold rings and the first thing he does is he goes to see um, Oliver Farnsworth. 
who's a patent lawyer with the thickest glasses I have seen in years. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely fantastic. He's got two massive magnifying glasses balanced on his face. <laughs> he hands over a, a, a big envelope full of money and he says, oh, I'm just buying a few hours of your time. Uh, please have a look at these, these sheets of paper. Um, and Farnsworth tells him, well, you have nine basic patents here. Now, I am not a patent lawyer, mm -hmm. but I can tell from the way he says this that this is pretty significant. And the guy says, oh, this is probably worth at least $300 million. Um, and uh, so uh, Newton ends up setting up um, an enormous tech empire. He stays in the shadows. He gets Farnsworth to run it. And he, uh, he he's built this uh, enormous um, empire out of his patents, which allow him to produce things like self, it's like self developing film, isn't it? And a whole new way of listening to music. That's a little bit like imagine someone got a compact disc and then they scrunched it up into a tiny little ball. That's what his that's what his kind of music player looks like. Um, but the big idea is that he's going to build a spaceship uh, to return to his own planet and presumably take most of the water with him. So he goes to New Mexico, um, where he's going to set up this spaceship building enterprise and there he meets mary lou and i think this is basically the start of act two so we've had act one up until now setting up um newton as this kind of crazy alien guy um and then he meets um, mary lou so, so she works in the motel where he stays and they just have an instant connection and she likes to hang out with him and she recognizes that he's kind of strange and mm -hmm. alien and bizarre but he's english so you know, of course he's going to be strange and alien and bizarre because that's what we're like um, now, meanwhile, um, Rip Torn is also in the film as Bryce. He's a chemistry professor. He's spending a lot of time sleeping with his, his students yeah. um, in, in what is a slightly uncomfortable sort of middle-aged man fantasy part of the film. Mm -hmm. um, so he gets a job with uh, Newton's company, World Enterprises. As a chemist, I think he's going he's gonna to develop the rocket fuel that's going to get um, Newton back to his home planet. And uh, he and so Bryce and Newton, they kind of become confidants and friends. Um, but Bryce is always a bit suspicious. There's something a bit weird and off mm -hmm. about Newton. So he takes an X-ray, like a secret X-ray picture of him. Yeah. Uh, which is this like fantastic thing produced by the art department of it's like a it's like a, a cutout outline of David Bowie sitting in a chair. Um and utterly unlike any X-ray I've ever seen, but uh, apparently this means that he can he rumbles he rumbles David Bowie. He figures out that Newton is a is an alien, yeah, and um, and uh, sort of confronts him with it. But uh, Newton is in the meanwhile it's, it's kind of his whole um, life is sort of falling apart. He so he sits at home all day. He watches many many TVs at the same time, and he drinks booze. Yeah. And his relationship with Mary Lou is breaking down and she's kind of been his sort of anchor point. And I think this is what you would call the midpoint of the movie where their great relationship then kind of turns sour. I just figured he's he's sort of doing the, the, the 1970s equivalent of doom scrolling, isn't it? He's got like a drink in one hand and instead of flicking through Instagram yeah. as fast as his thumb will take him, um, he's watching like multiple programs on lots of different televisions. It's like the closest he'd get in 1973. Do you know why he was watching all the televisions? I couldn't quite make that out. It seemed like he was, I don't know, if he was trying to play the stock market. He was trying to figure out what was selling, what was working in the United States to make him a lot of money. I sort of thought he was trying to assimilate assimilate human culture, at like, but at, okay. at 10 times normal speed. Sure. That was my guess, but okay. I could be wrong. Because a lot is made of that, because it seems like a, in the first hotel room, he's got lots of televisions. And then later on, when he's uh, he's sequestered or something like that, he's he's got 
a lot of televisions as well. So it seems to be super important, but the point was not really clear to me other than he's just bored or he, he maybe you're right. He was just trying to assimilate and learn American culture. I mean, I wonder whether the notion of having multiple televisions in your house seemed you know, utterly insane yeah. back in, and in 1976. Whereas Steve says, we're all used to watching YouTube videos at one and a half speed yeah. you know, while also playing a video game and listening to a podcast at the same time. It's kind of become the, we're all, we're all the man who fell to earth now. It's funny that you mentioned that because a number of households in my hometown, we had two televisions, one on top of the other because one inevitably wouldn't work <laughs> and, or would get some stations and then another would get the other stations or the sound would go out on one. So we'd have to use the sound from one television and the image of another. And it was just a sign of the times, I'm afraid. So like the whole issue about Newton's relation with uh, Mary Lee breaking down is yeah. what precipitates the one scene that I had seen as a teenager, oh. which is that um, he decides he'll reveal himself to Mary Lou. Mm -hmm. So he goes into the, into, the, into the bathroom and he removes his contact lenses. Mm -hmm. um, and underneath those, he's got these kind of strange yellow snake-like eyes. Yeah. And he kind of, uh, and he sort of takes off his wig and... And kind of he, he emerges as this kind of strange, semi-reptilian yeah. um, alien. And Mary Lou is you know, so incredibly freaked out by this that she pees herself. Yep. Like in, in close up, right you know, right on screen, right there, <laughs> kind of like you know, six inches from your face. And that that was the moment that I saw as a teenager. This is That was my only experience of this whole movie. Oh, wow. Like this 30-second snippet of David Bowie wearing crazy contact lenses and then a woman urinating. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing I knew about this film for many, many years. And that was that was that was enough to put me off trying to go and see it again. Oh. I thought, well, this is entertainment. What the hell do they put on BBC Two at late at night? Was that a trailer or just sort of like a preview for? No, that that was flicking through the channels. Oh, and wow. that was back you know back in a time when there were only four channels. So it's wow. not like I could I could doom scroll through two hundred channels. You either. struck gold with that scene, oh boy. Well, yeah, well, yeah, the wrong kind of gold, I think exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so uh, so eventually uh, Newton. Builds his spaceship, um, and on the eve of the launch, uh, when he's you know, he's about to be blasted off into space, he is kidnapped by yeah. the government. Yep. So uh, uh, the government basically they they take his companies and uh, they take his research, and they lock him up and experiment on him. Um, so now Bernie Casey is like a sort of a is the the government guy who. Um, now suddenly just steps in and controls all of uh, Newton's assets. There's a kind of very peculiar scene where he, he is swimming naked in a pool. There is a lot of nudity in this Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, a lot of people. And he kind of, he climbs naked out of the pool and his wife is standing naked next to the pool and he gives her a hug. And I didn't really understand what any of that was about, apart no. from maybe it was just to show that not only had they stole, stolen you know, his inventions and his spaceship, but also they had you know so much water that they could just splash about in it oh. without caring. Hmm. I'm guessing that's what it was about, but Good. it was also an excuse to get a lot of flesh on screen. Yeah. Um, so uh, Newton is taken off to this kind of strange hotel suite where he's, he's experimented on with some, some pretty random experiments. Mm -hmm. um, there's an accident with some x-rays, so the lenses that he wears to disguise his eyes get fused to his eyeballs so he can never take them off. And eventually, many, many years later, uh, Newton appears the same age, but Mary Lou is much older. Yeah. She comes and finds him. Um, she so gets into his hotel room, tracks him down. Uh, they have you know, quite disturbing sex with a revolver firing blanks at each other. Yep. Um, and then after that, um, he escapes and he becomes a pop star. 
uh, much like David Bowie. Oh, um, good figure. And his intention is he's, he, he records some songs because he knows that they will be broadcast by the radio. And that's his only hope of communicating with his estranged family back on his dying world. And the movie ends. Oh, quite suddenly at that, it right? It does um, end, doesn't it? Quite suddenly. So I think like the third act is basically it's it's David Bowie being experimented on and prodded and poked and injected. Mm-hmm. Um, then he escapes, becomes a pop star, credits roll. It all happens really pretty quickly. Yeah, and that is the man who fell to earth. Yeah. So had you seen it before this time round? I thought I had. And it, it, either it was so long ago that I've just forgotten everything or maybe I've blanked it out or... Um, it's possible that I just never saw it. Period. But it, it felt it felt familiar because I know that I'd seen either trailers for it or posters of it. And, and again, having seen it in Moon Age Daydream, it may have been just that that I'd seen it a week or two before, and then uh, I saw it again um, in its entirety. So I hadn't ever seen it. No. And I, it, it's a it's it was complicated for me. I I describe this as a very drifty film. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, just kind of story wandering, there's random sort of uh, order of events. It sort of cuts through time in a strange way because um, Rip Torn's character and Mary Lou end up together um, yeah. later on and they're gray-haired and, and from that she goes back to, to Bowie's character who's sometimes called Tommy, sometimes Newton. At one point I think he's Mr. Sussex too or something like that. <laughs> Um, it was yes. just, it was drifty. It was just like nothing really stuck on the wall. It was just throwing things into the camera. A lot of it also, also seemed to be cut in the camera, if you know what I mean. Like he, the, the ah. Rogue was just, he was kind of leaving very few editorial choices because there just wasn't um, coverage for certain scenes. And he was just sort of piecing it together as if it were, um, if it, as if it had some kind of continuity um, when it didn't. Um, so this was a, it was a hard kind of film for me to follow. And you picked up on a lot of things that kind of just... They didn't, you know, I know that I saw them, but they didn't stick to me. Like, um, <laughs> Nick Rogue, he does, he does love a zoom lens, doesn't he? Nick Rogue, there's a yeah, lot yeah. of scenes in this movie where the camera just very slowly zooms in or yeah. it zooms out. Yeah, you know, and that's that's kind of how, yeah, how he's doing his editing in camera, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does, and it doesn't leave. I don't know if the if he edited this film or not, but it doesn't leave your editor much much room to like piece together a story where there wasn't one or strengthen a story. Um, the, and the, is it Bryce, Nathaniel Bryce, the Rip Torn character? I, you know, yeah, he had a job. It wasn't really clear to me what his job was. Um, uh, it wasn't really that clear what Mary Lou and, uh, Miss Newton, David Boy's character, um, what their relationship really was all about. Like, yes, they, she saved him in a hotel at one point. He seemed to be passing up because of the conditions and she's a hotel worker. And all of a sudden they're living in the hotel together. Um, very odd. It sort of it jumps around. So I just I call it a drifty film. It was very very um, inconsistent, I guess. So it made it difficult to. There, there's a lot of like narrative gaps, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, we go from, you know, I, I I mean, I appreciated quite early on that there's no attempt to explain how um, David Bowie's character is able to speak English and yeah. how he understands what a pawn shop is and yeah. how he has a good idea of what what a gold ring would be worth. Um, he seems to understand humanity sort of surprisingly intimately yeah. for someone who is you know, a total stranger. Yeah. But then I was prepared to blip over that because I thought, well, maybe this is the impression of humankind that you would get or the information that you would gather from watching 50 years of television broadcasts. Yeah. That actually, you know, he's sort of, he's learned about the earth in this kind of distant way, like reading a, 
like reading a phrase book and a guidebook yeah. at great length over 50 years. So I was kind of prepared to accept that. And again, some of the narrative jumps about, you know, it doesn't explain how he got out of the capsule and where yeah. did he get his clothes from and how come he's kind of slip sliding down a gravel gravel hill at the first time we see him. Yeah. And I felt like those things kind of didn't matter. I was fairly happy with these kind of big story gaps mm -hmm. because I quite enjoyed the impressionistic storytelling. I tell you what. I tell you another yeah. thing that Nick Rogue likes, as well as a zoom lens, is he really does like people having sex in hotels. Ooh, yeah, um, that was a, a big feature in Insignificance. It's a big feature in Don't Look Now. It's a big feature in this film as well. There is yeah. an awful lot of people having sex in hotels. Yeah, um, in these films, it's a really uh, you know a much favoured theme. The 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 sex in this film is really weird though too. Um, like you mentioned, Nate, uh, you mentioned the scene with the the gun. Firing blanks yeah. in each other. That was disturbing. Um, yeah, I found that very hard to watch. But Rip Torn, yeah, having, you know, he's having sex with multiple um, students. Um, and they're kind of cross-cut, aren't they, these scenes? Yeah. And it's it's kind of odd sex. It's really weird. There's yeah. one, one what, is it one scene where she, uh, one of his students tries to, it's, it seems, I don't know if it's like a, it's a, it's a violent thing. I don't know if it was a rape scenario or something like that, but she attacks him or something like that. And then eventually you realize, oh, they're, it's some sort of sex game where, She's trying to break into his apartment and scare him, um, and it ends up that they know each other. Um, and that Bowie, for some reason, Bowie's character um, can he, he he get his own thinking gets interrupted by these visions of Bryce having sex. I couldn't figure that out at all. Like there's this, <laughs> this intercutting between Bowie in a coffee shop watching a performance or something like that, and then Rip Torn having sex with undergrads um, on his campus. And it's almost as if those thoughts are interfering with Bowie's thinking. It was very odd. Um, but he has this kind of, this way of seeing through time, hasn't he? Because yeah. there's a strange scene where they're driving through the, the Midwest. Uh, it's like, it's like New Mexico scenery or whatever. And, and David Bowie is able to see settlers from a hundred years previously. That's right. Yeah. And then the settlers also kind of see David Bowie as well. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange and, unexplained and mysterious. Yeah, and he doesn't age through the film, as you mentioned, but other characters mm. are aging. And I guess, you know, from an alien perspective, that might make some sense. But for an Earthling like me watching the film, it didn't. It reminded me a little bit of a comment I remember a friend of mine made when we were at school, when we were talking about Star Trek, and he observes that the one great thing, the big advantage Star Trek had over all other science fiction shows was that you know, other science fiction programs would have someone with makeup or a bit of plastic on their face to be the aliens. Yeah. Whereas Star Trek had managed to find an actual alien to pay, appear as one of the characters in the show. Yeah. Because Leonard Moy was just so, you know, utterly sort of otherworldly. Yeah. And I felt very similarly about David Bowie. So I think it's inspired casting yeah. as an alien. Because, Definitely. Um, yeah, he um, really does seem tremendously alien. Yeah. And in fact... Um, this notion that um, his genuine alien nature is revealed by him taking some contact lenses off or in the real world, putting some contact lenses in yeah. um, feels almost the wrong way around because David Bowie's eyes so, um, so distinctive and unusual looking. Yeah. That, um, you know, you don't really need to interfere with his eyes to make him look alien. No, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's part of what makes him look, so peculiar. Yeah, it really plays into the whole the, the Brett Morgan vision of uh, Bowie as an alien as well. Yeah, and I think he's absolutely. he's very well cast, and he actually acts quite well. I mean, he's he's it's a good part for him, and he he plays it very well. 
Um, I did read a little interview about the making of the film, but Bowie okay. was saying that basically in, in, in this film, um, it was like his first proper acting gig, and he was not acting. He said he was just kind of existing ah. and taking a lot of cocaine, apparently. Oh, really? So, yeah, so, so yeah, I don't think he was thinking about character. He would claim that he wasn't really... He, hadn't really done any preparation or anything like that. He was just saying the lines in the way that seemed appropriate to him at the time. And yet this kind of off-kilter, strange, otherworldly performance is exactly what the film needs. I think it's yeah, it does show that 60% of the battle is the casting and they yeah. they won that 60% fair and square for this film. Yeah, I, th- I think another thing that this film needs, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't in there that I... <laughs> that I would have liked, that I wanted. Um, like, the, the, there's not really enough on his home planet, I don't think, and his family, which it seems like a really interesting world. And as you said, it's implied that he was able to sort of study up on Earth, but we don't really see any of that. Um, and all, all they have is like this, this weird shed on rails with a I, with a, um, a, a, a sail over it, isn't it? Oh my god, and I, I loved that. <laughs> it looked like a um, it looked like a gingerbread house on a like a train made of gingerbread. And I thought, Jesus, if you can't get food or water, just start eating the gingerbread train. <laughs> you can survive. Um, so they're all dying because their tongues were so dry. Those yeah. gingerbread. Oh, I've got nothing to wash it down with. Help, help. <laughs> Um, which reminds me of the milk scene too. I'll talk about that in a moment. But I, th- I think that that I love the costumes on there. They're sort of in these sort of uh, I don't know glassy dome helmets, and they've got all these tubes giving them I don't know what maybe what mm-hmm. little water they can condense and uh, and air um, to breathe. Um, I love that, and I think they do show us a little bit of that planet. But I think I needed a little bit more. Um, I don't you know I don't promote a lot of flashbacks in films, but I think something more would have been. Um, good sustenance because otherwise as I said it's drifty it sort of goes from one thing to another um, and neither world is really particularly well drawn in my mind like the, the earth as it is in the 1970s or whatever it's supposed to take place um, it was a little unclear um, and you're, you add all the time jumping in there and it just it makes for kind of a confusing thing and it just again a drifty film to follow um, and okay so the, the weird the other weird sex scene I thought was yeah. Mary Lou there's this milk thing, right? He's he's with her. I think it's the chocolate cook, chocolate chip cookie moment, not the not the gun moment. But there's this yeah. There's this love scene where there's a milk sex thing going on on the planet that he's sort of experiencing that too. Or sex with Mary Lou <laughs> reminds him of the milk sex on his planet. Am I way off base here? <laughs> I, I, I didn't see it as milk sex, but you're ex- I know exactly what you're talking about. It looked more more to me like um it was it was trampoline sex. Okay, while some grips. Through buckets of emotion in the air, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> Obviously, that's how sex works on the alien planet. I thought it was a milk, a and, milk and cookies thing. I saw the chocolate chip cookie and I saw the milk sex on the other planet. <laughs> oh, my God. It was fun to watch. I got to say, it was a, I mean, not that scene necessarily, but the, the film. The film knows what its themes are. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it explores them, I think, pretty well. I, th- I think I came away feeling that what it wanted to try and express was that human love you know is is alien and strange i think it, okay. it kind of it's the, the, the film is all about this kind of um this attitude of uh, towards love and the way that love is expressed i mean the mere fact that when he comes down his currency is wedding rings yeah i think and it's you know it's all about you know his family which he is estranged from mm-hmm. you know and bryce and newton they're kind of the same because they're both they're both brilliant and they're both estranged from their family they're both kind of isolated uh. and lonely um, and you know, it's kind of a, a Farnsworth lives with his kind of sort of his lover, 
Yeah. You know, and that's like another you know, important theme there, kind of sort of togetherness. Yeah. You know, and um, when the government comes in and murders Farnsworth yeah. to take over the business, yeah, they murder the lover as well, don't yeah. they? Yeah. And the fact that the, the most important person in his life you know, when he comes down to the earth is, you know, Mary Lou, who's just like, you know, a, a woman who works in a hotel. Yeah. But it's, it's not that he's, he, you know, he hasn't done the alien thing of descending to the planet and saying, take me to your leader. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he said, take me to your chambermaid. It's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of closeness to a real person. And she, you know, yeah. she takes him to church, doesn't she? And yeah, that's right. You know, introduces him to kind of booze and TV and things. And, and it's like this, the little things of life. It's, you know, absolutely about, you know, meditation on love and how strange, it can be. That's good. I, I wrote down there's like, like a, there are a couple of sort of sub themes that I identified. I think it's trying to say that corporate power is not the answer. It seems very quaint in 2022 mm-hmm. to watch a film where the government is more powerful than a corporation. Yeah. Because uh, that's you know utterly the opposite yeah. to what we live in now, isn't it? These days, you know, yeah. corporations. It, it's why we live in a dystopia. The corporations really are the most most powerful bodies you know david bowie in this film is kind of playing elon musk isn't he yeah um you know he's a guy with a whole bunch of technology patents he wants to build a rocket i mean it's absolutely mm-hmm. elon musk in a way i felt the film was kind of trying to extol the virtues of randian exceptionalism mm. it's a little bit of that sort of iron rand you know uh, great people should be allowed to do great things without interference from the little people so there is a bit of an element of that. Yeah, but then you've done some good digging there. I agree with you. Um, I don't know that any one of them is that strong. It's almost like the uh, the documentary where things are spread a little thin, so nothing really sinks in forcefully. Because there's also this whole uh, environmental degradation piece of, of his plan yeah. and then coming to the Earth to try and solve that problem. Um, it's puzzling, yeah. I, must say, I, think, I think I enjoyed the movie a lot more than you did, it sounds like. Probably. I, I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I think... Um, what I appreciate is that uh, Nick Rogue, he's trying, he's playing, it's experimental, and but he never settles on any one of those themes or, or the story really um, with a lot of commitment, I thought. And so I, th- I think as a, as, a, as a result of succeeding in delivering one theme or one really strong storyline, it's sort of just uh, he doesn't really succeed to my, to my grading um, anywhere. Um, so that's what made it um, odd to me. And then I also thought it was... There are some moments that were like clearly comic or supposed to be comic, and I didn't feel like this was a comedy by any means. But um, I'm not sure I can remember a single comic moment. What were the comic moments? Can you remember any? Um, well, God, just—I mean, the gingerbread train. I just thought they—they they don't. <laughs> they're not serious about this. Um, <laughs> and then others. I, I couldn't figure out like the the relationship between Buck Henry, who plays Farnsworth, and his lover. It was so there's such just such an odd life, and the, the glasses, like the big glasses. <laughs> what was yeah, it all about? I couldn't yeah. figure out. You know, you're not necessarily supposed to take seriously someone who's got like trifocals and just <laughs> enormous bug eye glasses, <laughs> and they have all these different eyeballs as a result. Um, they were just so yeah. I think in in both or or when David Bowie's showing uh, Nathaniel Bryce the what are they like a lighthouse or something, some sort of tower, and he's got this energy source, right? And he's the, talking about using that to, I think, go to space. And that's where he comes on with his chemistry. Um, oh, yeah. Um, that was just odd scenes that I don't know if they were supposed to be absurdly comic or or just, you know, straight up um, slapstick almost at times. So it, it was it was strange to know where this film was coming from and where it was going, I guess. I've got, I wanted to try and do kind of like a bit of a synthesis of trying to bring the two films together. Mm. It, it, it does feel like we're getting two different 
bites at the David Bowie cherry. Is that, oh, does that if that's a really stupid? I regret saying that already. That's a, very, that's a ridiculous <laughs> image. But um, but I I I must say I came away from the man who fell to earth feeling like I had got a deeper, more honest insight into David Bowie the man from the man who fell to earth mm-hmm. than I did from Moon Age Daydream. You know, I think I think. It, it, partly because there's just an awful lot more nudity in the kind of fell to earth. So I, you know, yeah. I, I have had a number of close-ups of David Bowie's butt crack, and and so I feel like yes, actually, <laughs> that, that aspect of him I do know intimately now, probably more intimately than I wanted to. But, <laughs> but also, but in, in a way, I feel like there is less acting from David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth than there is in Moon Age Daydream. I think in in The Man Who Fell to Earth, I feel it's almost a more honest straightforward unmediated presentation of a man who is kind of otherworldly and a little bit lost Mm -hmm. um and not hiding behind you know the the thin white duke or the kind of the ziggy stardust or any of these personas that he created for himself i feel like i i I can see more of you know the david bowie who's the child in those photographs that we see with his parents in Moon Age Daydream, mm-hmm. in The Man Who Fell to Earth. I just think it, it strikes me that this is a you know a, a pretty honest psychological portrait of the man himself. Mm-hmm. Isn't that that's massively ironic too? I think uh, I think you've got a good point there. Like he's most consistent in The Man Who Fell to Earth. You see one one Bowie, yep, and you see that one Bowie very completely. Whereas in Moon Age Daydream, you see a number of Bowies, and you like most of them. You know, you're you admire all those Bowies, but you never get a true feeling of one rounded out Bowie, I guess. Was there, was there one Bowie? Was there ever one Bowie? I don't think there ever was. Well, maybe in, the, well, this is the one moment. He was, the man who fell to it. earth was the one Bowie. <laughs> right. So, okay. I, well, I enjoyed both those films. That was good. Um, I think we have just got time yeah. um, for also playing at this theatre. seen anything else good last couple of weeks since last time we spoke um i don't think so no i'm trying to <laughs> no, think of nothing so that's it folks thanks <laughs> and good night <laughs> well i can't think of it. i'm i'm hoping to go see a film tonight called uh tuba to cuba i think it is tuba to cuba um, right. it's about uh the Pre- preservation uh hall jazz band from new orleans and they make a trip to cuba to jam with cuban musicians down there and it looks like it's going to be Great music, so we should be loud and good music um, on film. So I think it brings together some things I'm really interested in. So I, I'm hoping to see that tonight. Um, well, only other movie that we have seen in our house, mm-hmm. um, apart from the East David Bowie epics, um, is Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Oh, um, which is on a Saturday night. We uh, yeah <laughs> needed to watch something that was family friendly, um, and uh, I was uh, surprised to see uh, Chloe Grace Moretz in a really early role. Um, in that movie it's a kind of it's a pretty straightforward um, kind of middle school comedy um, which my son guffawed at Uh, so it had the the, exactly the the required effect and he laughed his head off oh brilliant you know when he laughs I laugh so so that was a yeah that was a good way to spend an evening I was happy with that well chosen then and that's probably what is that five ten years old by now I know the book probably probably 10 or or 15 years old I would guess yeah I'd have to look it up 
Precisely. Oh, good. Oh, good. So this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Um, so we, I feel like we've explored space and time. Yeah. Um, I'm exhausted. What shall we do uh, next, though? What will we do <laughs> in our next program? Well, next time around, I think we're going to watch um, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a new uh, Netflix version, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, so we're going to watch that. Uh, so if you want to watch along with us, um, if you want to avoid the spoilers by getting in on the film before us, then, yep, um, watch that. And we're going to try and compare it to uh, which Kubrick film have we chosen? Full Metal Jacket. 1980, what, five, eighty-six, somewhere in there? Yeah, something like that, wasn't it? Amongst uh, five or ten other uh, Vietnam movies, which all came out that year, and I have no idea why. Um, so pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, I know. I know one of those is going to be absolutely spectacularly good. Yes. Um, so uh, join us next time, uh, and we've got a popcorn counter before then. So uh, yeah. I hope you'll come and join us at the popcorn counter next week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>